You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Allison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Welcome to So You Want to Be a Writer, Episode 7. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with my good friend, Alison Tate. How are you today, Alison? I'm extremely well. I'm actually doing a little bit of a happy dance as we speak. I do like a little happy dance occasionally um, because I've um, finally been given the green light to talk about my um, children's fantasy adventure series. I know. I'm so excited. So um, the first book in the Mapmaker Chronicles series is going to come out on the 14th of October and then it's going to be followed rapidly by books two and three, which I'm you know, working and editing on at the moment. So I'm very, very excited and um, I can't wait to, um, you know, get them out there and, and, and see what people think. It's, it's a big, big, big moment. So tell us what it's about. Well, it's about, it came from an idea um, that I had. I had a conversation with my son who's now 10 and we were looking up at the stars and we were contemplating the immense hugeness of the universe and how... You look up there and you wonder, you just can't help wondering, you know, how far it goes and what's out there and where does it go and where does it end? And we had that conversation and then then we were very soon after that, we were having another discussion about the explorers and how they went out um, into the world. And I said to him, oh, well, they would feel very, very much like we felt looking up at the stars, you know, like just the immense hugeness of it all. And then I suddenly thought, you know what? That is a great idea for a book. (laughs) And so I have a race to map the world. And I have three um, map makers who are all around the age of 14. And they're on boats and they're out there and they are discovering the world for the first time. It's very exciting. And it's a three-book series. It's a three-book series. Fantastic. The world's pretty big, Val. Well, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty big. So anyway, so that's what what I'm doing in my little happy dance. And what about you? What are you up to? Goodness me, I haven't been writing a three-book series, no. um, but I have been listening to a lot of podcasts myself lately. Um, it's been interesting just to see what's been happening in the podcasting landscape. I think it's pretty exciting that we can announce that we are number the number one writing and literature podcast in Australia. So thank you, everyone, thank who you. have been listening. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your support. We hope to bring you lots of fantastic news and gossip and interesting insights into the world of writing, publishing and blogging. So we're, we're, we're chuffed. I'm doing a happy dance. Exactly. It's like matching happy dances now exactly. in unison. Yes, yes. With pom-poms. We, okay. And, yeah, all right. <laughs> With pom-poms. <laughs> you want to just hold that image right there? <laughs> yes. So in terms of what's been happening in the world of writing, blogging and publishing this week, I think we've got a really interesting uh Post an article written by former Prime Minister Julia Gillard in The Guardian about, of all things, Game of Thrones. Now, the woman is clearly obsessed, along with many other Australians, about 
Game of Thrones, which recently started series four around the world. Um, and she opens the Guardian article with, for many long months, we starved. The best we could do was rewatch old episodes to remind ourselves of the many ingredients that make up this densely populated drama. I first felt the addictive power of Game of Thrones when I was Prime Minister, living in a world where power was also pursued relentlessly, albeit far less colourfully. Certainly the characters of my world were nowhere near as good looking or exotic, <laughs> exotically dressed. The staff who worked with me most closely talked in a language I didn't understand. <laughs> And it goes on to say, during moments of rest, the police on my protection detail would be hunched over iPads, watching and talking the same strange lingo. She has such a way with words. I think she's fantastic. Yeah. And she has, you know, become one of the many Game of Thrones devotees. And I have to say, I am not one of them. Are you? Oh, my God, Valerie. Yes, I am. However, um, I read all the books. So the TV show for me is really um, my husband and I are working our way through the series. We're we're still on series two, mostly because we don't get a lot of time to watch TV, but also because I know what's going to happen. So it's not as enthralling for me as it is for him. And um, we'll sort of sit there and we'll be watching and he'll be like, oh, my God. And I'll be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. (laughs) No, I I read it. I, I understand what Ms. Gillard is talking about because for me... I got completely obsessed with the series when I started reading it. I had no idea it wasn't finished when I began and I would just like to point out that I really wish I'd waited till the whole series was complete because I got to the end of it and went, what do you mean I've got to wait two years for the next book? Um, No, the politics for me is everything. It is what keeps me enthralled and engrossed in the book. I mean, dragons are are really neither here nor there for me, but the the politics of it and the incredibly, like, I think you can see... Mr. Martin's um, TV background in the books because the TV, the characters are just incredible and they're not all black and white. That's what I think is so beautiful about them. The the grey characters are, I think, in many ways what he does best of all. So, yes, I am obsessed but not necessarily with the TV show like everyone else is. Right. Well, clearly you've, yes, drunk the Game of Thrones Kool-Aid, which I have not. So well, I... no, it's, it is a very... Uh, but as I said, like I finished, I finished the last book uh, over two years ago now, and I couldn't believe that I was going to have to wait and wait and wait, and I'm still waiting. And I, I just really feel like it's time now. <laughs> what do you think so appealing about it? Why is it so popular? Um, well, I think the TV show is is incredibly good looking. I think that does help a great deal. Um, I, I think it's the human relations. I think it's you know again the the wars and the there's certain weird elements aside of it. it it's all about about human relationships power struggles you know and it played out on enormous scale mm, so, so it's epic but it's actually epic. and actually the themes are you know pretty simple and i think one of the a post that i read this week which we'll put in the show notes um which shows how epic stories can be really simplified is one about uh, all of shakespeare's plays converted to three-panel web comics. So literally every single Shakespearean play has been distilled into three little pictures. So Macbeth in three panels is three witches tell Macbeth he will be king. Second panel, Macbeth kills lots of people in order to be king. And third panel, Macbeth is killed. 
Sorry if you haven't read Macbeth and that's a spoiler. <laughs> if you've never got to the end, this is what this is what happened. Um, it's like York Notes, isn't it? But just in in three panels instead of in those in those books. Um, I think it's fantastic, and I, I think it shows you the three act structure quite beautifully. As well. Absolutely, absolutely. With, with Julius Caesar, we've got Cassius and Brutus assassinate Julius Caesar. Then we've got Mark Antony gives a really big speech, <laughs> and then. Cassius and Brutus kill themselves. <laughs> yeah, I oh know it's great, isn't it? It's fantastic. All accompanied with, uh, you know, cute little stick figures. So it's a great little post that uh, came up this week. But another thing that was brought to my attention uh, is a site, I don't know if you've seen it, it's called Beacon Reader. And I think this is quite fascinating because it's kind of like a crowdfunding site for writers or journalists. So um, just to give you an idea of the kinds of things that um, are on the site is you could back a journalist called <clears throat> Shane Bauer on his particular project. You could um, back a journalist about uh the promise and peril in Somaliland or America's toxic military sites and they've indicate, uh, indicated a certain amount that they need in order to back their project and then you, you crowdfunded in a similar way as Kickstarter or any of those crowdfunding projects. So it's a great way to sort of let the market determine which of these um investigative projects they actually want to they actually want to fund and which ones are going to get off the ground so you can apply to fund a project or you can apply as a writer if you've got a particular project in mind so unlike kickstarter which has many different types of projects you could fund including tech funding and you know funding a a cd that a songwriter wants to produce um, this is specifically for for writers so interesting yeah what do you think of that idea i I'm not exactly. Sh- I'm not entirely sure what I think about that. I'm looking at some of the projects that are are um, available here, and I'm noticing that the most popular ones are kind of what you would consider to be the sexiest stories. You know, uh, just as they are, as they would be in the newspaper, getting the most clicks. You know, I'm going to spend an entire year investigating prisons. Mm. Has um, a huge amount of money raised on it. Are you really my friend? I'm on a mission to photograph all of my Facebook friends in their homes around the world. You know what? I might sign up to do that project myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, look, I think it's an interesting idea and I can see where the, um, you know, the why, it, part of me just thinks why not? Like if people are willing to put their $5 forward, then then why not? I'm not entirely sure it's something I would I would do myself. I'm not sure. What do you think? Would you do it? Um, I think it's interesting because it means that the arbiters um, are the market and it's not just, you know, uh, a news site determining which particular project to back because they may have other constraints like um, the advertising dollar or other political reasons that they won't pursue a particular path or investigate a particular path. But if a particular journalist, hopefully a good quality one, does have the passion and drive to go down a particularly particular investigation route, I think it's a great option for them. I just hope that it does stay into that kind in that kind of vein as opposed to, you know, having projects up there of I, I will stalk the Kardashians for six months or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and that's, I think, you know, in some ways, if you have a look at a lot of the crowdfunding stuff that has been done, you know, some of the projects that, that people, uh, 
you know, ask money for, you start to think, well, really, is this a good thing? I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, I think it'd be a really interesting thing to keep an eye on and just see how it um, how it plays out. You know, Definitely. whether what sort of stories are actually people are willing to to pay to have investigated. I mean, if it gives people the resources to to get involved in some of this and some of these really difficult stories, then yes, I say it's probably a great thing. And on the other end of the scale, oh, right. now while I, <laughs> I don't actually read Mamma Mia that often these days, however, I have to bring to our attention an excellent article by Rosie Waterland on the Real Housewives of Melbourne because I have to say you might be watching Game of Thrones, but I have been watching the train wreck, yes, I will admit it, called the Real Housewives of of Melbourne and um, Rosie does this great recap of the episode and you, you kind of wonder sometimes oh do we really just need a blow by blow recap of, a, of an episode that's just been on TV but she does it brilliantly so I'll just read the opening uh, to, to you um, and Rosie says so we know this episode is going to be about how everyone hates Gina because the previously on Housewives package is all about how everyone hates Gina I think it's because she was late to tennis last week bitch this week the ladies are going on a trip to Queensland and the girls keep saying the words Mission Beach so I think they may be headed to a, pla- to a place called Mission Beach. In fact, they're saying Mission Beach so much, I feel there may be some serious advertising dollars on the line. So I'm going to give them a hand and throw it out there a few times. Mission Beach. They're going to Mission Beach. That's Mission Beach in Queensland. The ladies are going to Mission Beach. Mission Beach. Oh, Valerie, <laughs> this is exactly why I do not watch these shows. <laughs> I read that recap. It tells me absolutely everything I need to know and I can't imagine watching the actual episode. So you need to tell me now, why do you watch it? A, it's a train wreck. And I know that sounds awful, (laughs) but it also is an example of human behaviour that has to be seen to be believed. I actually can't believe some of the things that these housewives come up with, the things that they say, and um, it's quite gobsmacking that you you sit there in wonderment and and shock that um, these human beings actually exist and are happy to interact and show, you know, this kind of behaviour on national television so but aren't they just really being characters I mean they're not I mean I don't I mean I don't I have never watched an episode of any of that franchise so I, I have I cannot comment in any way shape or form really but it just strikes me as you know I mean most of those things are semi-scripted aren't they yeah, maybe may that is certainly the case and certainly they are being characters, but it does have an impact. These are, they are real people, they have real businesses and their behaviour does have an impact on their pers- not just their personal brand but also their actual dealings in business. I know How some, you perceive them. Exactly, yeah. and whether yeah. you choose then to do business with them in the future and I've heard some rumblings uh, from you? people that I know that they've chosen not to do business with some of the people who they have previously been doing business with. Um, um, on the show because of the way that, that they, you know, decide to portray themselves. Interesting. But I have to say that I do agree with you that Rosie's recap is very funny. <laughs> She's very funny. I, I love the droll tone that she takes through it. I think it's it's um, it's really good. So to me, I would probably rather read Rosie's recap. 
every week than watch the show. <laughs> this is true. Yes, and we'll put her recap in the show notes. It's great. Moving on to the world of uh, blogging, there's an interesting new documentary out in uh, the US and it's going to be available for purchase on iTunes in June. I'm not entirely sure whether in Australia we'll be able to access it, but um, hopefully we will. <laughs> is that hopefully in a you know, real housewives kind of way or hopefully in a Game of Thrones kind of way? <laughs> I, I think it's just, uh, it, look, somebody has decided, um, his name is James Wiegand and he's decided to create a documentary on uh, bloggers and they're mainly mummy bloggers in the United States and the, um, the documentary is called American Blogger. So let's just have a little bit of a listen to the trailer. When you think you start this little blog, you never know where it's going to take you. From filmmaker Christopher Wiegand, in his feature film debut, comes a journey that spans a nation. I've been thinking I should drive instead of fight all these places. How's that going to work? Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Well, you've always wanted one. After restoring an Airstream, he traveled over 15,000 miles to bring you this feature-length documentary that will change the way you see an entire industry. What is a blog? What is a blog? What is a blog? Lifestyle, fashion. Blogs about being a mom, travel. When I knew you were coming here today, I thought, I wonder who the first person to ever start a blog was. It's such a timestamp of our life right now. With stunning cinematography, this story is told against the backdrop of the great American landscape. Follow along as he travels the United States, interviewing a range of bloggers who open up about community, about sharing, and about life. Entertaining and educational, this film will leave you feeling inspired. It will open your eyes to a thriving movement that potentially could change the world. American Blogger. Coming soon. To learn more, go to AmericanBlogger.com. Well, that was an epic trailer. I mean, judging by the voiceover on that, it sounds more like Game of Thrones. Well, there you go. Maybe it's going to be more that than the housewives. We can only hope, can't we? Or some of us. Some of us who like train wrecks might actually prefer it to be the other. Would you watch a movie about bloggers? Well, I think an interesting thing that uh, another blog post about this um, has brought up, and we'll put it in the show notes, is that they've make the observation they're largely American white female (laughs) bloggers who seem fairly privileged. So it seems to be quite a a small subsection. I think he's interviewed 51 bloggers. And if they're going to be 51 bloggers that are all a bit samey, then I probably don't need to watch a documentary on it. But if it was actually um, an exploration into the diversity in blogging and the different ways they can achieve things, and, you know, as the trailer says at the end of it, these 
case, apparently these bloggers can indeed change the world. Well, <laughs> <laughs> of course, well, they wear capes in their spare time. Yeah, so we'll, we'll see. I don't know. I'm, I'll be interested to see the reviews when it comes out. I think we'll have to watch it just so that we can, you know, discuss it further in a sort of Real Housewives of Melbourne kind of way, don't you think? <laughs> Maybe, Maybe we could get Rosie to do a recap for us. Maybe Julia Gillard will. Oh, be- oh even better. <laughs> even better. Okay, so what's what else is going on in the world of blogs this week, Alice? Well, um, I think it's worth talking about the fact that there's recently been a brand new blog-to-book success story. And it's quite an interesting one. It's a... Um, It was a photo project Mm. and it became incredibly popular to the point of 4 million fans later. And now there is a best-selling book. Um, The page is called Humans of New York and it's um, a really interesting concept. It's a man walking around New York taking photos of people, talking about them, like just getting a little one sort of line or two-line caption that goes with with the photo. So you're essentially meeting the humans of New York. Mm-hmm. And now it's come for, gone forward and now it's this number one selling photography book. You know, it's a, it's a hard cover mm-hmm. and it was an instant New York Times bestseller, which wow. um, I think is a really interesting thing because the whole project began in the summer of 2010 and now we're sort of, you know, three, four years later and it's become this massive um, phenomenon. So I'm just, uh, my, from my perspective, it's a quite an interesting thing in how blogs can grow into these worldwide phenomenons and worldwide books. There was one that we have discussed before in another time um, called Pen and Ink, which was one, um, again, it was f- photography, mm. but it was the story stories behind tattoos. So it was images of people with their tattoos and talking about the stories behind them. So the So the... The um, I guess the key selling point with these th- things seems to be stories, you know, great stories, great photos. And also just a unique take on it. I, you know, I was recently at um, Social Media Marketing World in San Diego and one of the case studies that was brought up was um, a photographer who, you know, he loved his photography and he was down to his final, like he was broke and he was down to his final, um, you know, amount of money. So what did he do? He bought an underwater camera and decided to take photos of dogs underwater Dogs and, underwater. Yeah, in Specifically the swimming, dogs underwater. Yeah, in the swimming pool, you know, he would okay. like throw in a ball and they would dive in and he would capture the look on their face as they're underwater and it went nuts and it's now several best-selling books. So it's just that, you know, it's it's something that um, occurs every single day. You know, there is a human in New York um, that you may encounter every single day. Dogs have been jumping into the swim- swimming pools since the beginning of time, but it's someone's decision to make it a thing, you know what I mean, to capture yes. that moment. And- Do you think it's important to make it a thing via a blog before it becomes a book in those sorts of instances? Like, do you need, like when they were talking about it at Social Media Marketing World, you know, is it is it about sort of drawing attention to your thing before, you know, like if you – because I guess if somebody just popped out a book called Dogs Underwater and yeah. it disappeared into a bookshop, probably 
would it be seen again? No. Well, I think it needs to be a thing on a blog. That's right. And it only needs to be a thing on the blog because a blog is easily shareable and that's where it gains its following. It could be Instagram. It could be Facebook. It could be whatever. But the reality is everyone can go to a URL on a blog, whereas yeah. you don't necessarily – you may not have necessarily signed up on Instagram. You may not have necessarily come across, you know, whatever that particular page on Facebook. So I think that it, the, the platform being a blog just happens to be the thing that is most easy easily shareable and as a result I do think it needs to be on something like that something that's easily accessible by everyone that can be spread at the at the click of a mouse and that's where it gains its you know it's it's almost cult following okay and so then I would ask you this because this is the other thing that I find really interesting about these things so let's assume that let's talk about the um, humans of New York one again so basically there there's the photo there's the caption it's all there on Facebook for me um, it's been going for several years. Why do I buy the book instead of just continuing to look at them on Facebook? Because I think that's the that's the key thing, isn't it? Like making people shell out money for the project that they've already seen on the blog. What's the difference? A gift. <laughs> you're not going to buy it for yourself, Alison, are you? But you're very likely to buy it for as a gift around Mother's Day, Father's Day, or Christmas time. Right. I see. <laughs> to somebody that you do want to share it with. Uh, okay. It's. It's. I think that's very likely. Have you bought dogs underwater for anyone? Else? <laughs> you bought it for yourself, didn't you? I know you. You bought it for yourself. But it's quite exciting because there's a couple of great um, blog to book. Uh, success stories um, coming up in Australia in the next couple of months. I know um, Sophie Hansen from Local is Lovely, her um, her cookbook actually came out, I think, in the last couple of weeks. Reservoir, Reservoir Dad's book is coming out later this year. Um, Nikki from Styling You has a book coming out um, later this year. I think August hers comes Yay, out. Yay, Nikki. Yay, Nikki. So there's a few um, there's a few blog to book phenomenon stories for us to follow here in Australia as well, which I'm I'm really looking forward to. And of course, Sinead Roy, who uh, her blog is Cook Republic, and she oh, was course. the winner of the Best Australian Blogs competition by the Australian Writers Centre in 2013, and her book is out this month, April, by Random <laughs> House. So who's our writer in residence this week, Alison? Well, we actually have an editor in residence this week. We have freelance editor Kylie Mason who um, works on everything from structural edits of fiction work to copy edits of non-fiction and fiction. She, she works across the board. She's, been a, she's a very experienced editor and I thought it would be a great idea to talk to her because I think that people find editors kind of scary and they're worried that they're going to like take their precious words and turn them into something that, that does not resemble what they started with. And I think it's reassuring to talk to someone like Kylie and understand that they're just as invested in your book as you are. And it's even more important now that so many people are self-publishing mm. to understand just what an editor does and how they work. So anyway, Kylie was very generous with her answers and here she is. Today I'm talking to Kylie Mason, a Sydney-based freelance editor with a long history of working with Australian publishers, both on staff and on a freelance basis. Hi, Kylie. Hi, Alison. How are you going? I'm very well. Great to have you here. Um, so maybe we could start our interview with just a bit of an overview as to how you became a book editor, because I think it's something that a lot of people are probably quite interested in. Sure. Well, I did a degree, I did a Bachelor of Arts, and I majored in Communications and Creative Writing. And after I graduated, I did a master's in creative writing and then kind of thought, what do I do now? So I became a bookseller. 
Oh. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I did right. that for a long time. Um, okay. I was a bookseller for five years, and then I thought I want to know more about publishing. And I was very lucky to get a job with HarperCollins Publishers as uh, a fiction department assistant. Um, and it just snowballed from there. They were wonderful. They trained me up. I worked with some lovely authors and some lovely editors. And I did that for six years. I, I moved to Pan Macmillan after a few years at HarperCollins, and they trained me really well in different aspects of publishing, and here I am. Wow, okay. So you've done the Masters in Creative Writing. Have you? Do you write as well? Uh, I don't write at the moment. Um, okay. However, if I did have a dollar for every time someone asked me that, I would need I, to be an editor. I was going to say, um, yeah, that's interesting. Cause, so obviously the, as the editing, editing side of it is what really interests you at the moment. It is. Um, I think I love getting involved with stories and I love getting involved with writers and I love the way writers think. Um, and I think having the background with the Masters gives me a bit more of an insight and, and gives me a... a the ability to be sensitive to a, a, the way writers work and how they feel. And it's incredibly intrusive to have a stranger read your book and then offer comments on it and, and solutions if they think there's a problem. So I hope that influences the way I work. Okay, great. So, all right, let's talk a little bit about what a, a book editor does. How, how do you, I mean, what, what's your role with the novel? Uh, it depends on what the writer or the, the publishing company who's hired me wants me to do. I can structurally edit a novel, which means I go in and I look at the big picture and I make sure that the book makes sense, that there's a proper narrative arc, that the voice works, that characters have good motivation and are well-rounded and not two-dimensional. Um, and if there are problems, then I think about ways that uh, the writer might address those problems and suggest them. I don't ever say, you must fix this and fix it. Uh, because it's not my book, and that's the golden rule. I don't read a book and, and, and take it over. Right. The writer has worked so hard to get it right that I'm just there to kind of nudge and encourage solutions for, for parts that might be troublesome. And, you know, there are sometimes manuscripts that don't have very many problems. You might just have one timing issue. Um, but that's pretty rare. Oh, okay. <laughs> See, I was, I, as a writer, I just sit back every time I send it off and think, this is the one that's going to come back and they're going to say, this is so perfect, we don't need to do anything. <laughs> Hasn't happened yet, just quietly. Yeah, no, it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> All right, so there's the structural edit and then yep. what are the other processes that, that you might be called upon to be involved in? So in Australian publishing, we have structural editing and we have copy editing and they're the two main uh, procedures. Um, I do mainly copy editing as a freelance editor, so I look really closely at manuscripts line by line. I look at spelling and grammar and punctuation, but I also keep a, a close eye on anything that might pull a reader out of the story. So if there's inconsistencies or if there are anomalies or continuity problems, like if eye colour changes, or, you know, things like that, where you kind of go, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not involved in this story anymore and I'm distracted by that then that's what I want to draw to the author's attention and ask them to consider fixing okay and so which of those like which of those procedures do you like the the best like from your perspective do you enjoy that big picture that character wouldn't do that sort of stuff or do you like the 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 detail the eye colors change stuff yeah I 
kind of flip between the two. I really do like structural edits, but I don't do them as often as I do copy edits. Okay. And I like copy edits because I'm such a huge know-it-all that <laughs> I like to research stuff. So if, if, um, if there's a particular detail mentioned, then I'll go off and Google it and make sure that's okay. Or if there's a detail mentioned that I know is wrong, I get to kind of put a comment and going, oh, my research tells me that this doesn't happen at this time or this was impossible. So I, I like to use all this strange knowledge that I have in my head and bring it to, to the edit. Um, right. And, okay. I, yeah, I really hope that it doesn't annoy the writer. But so are you a nightmare in trivia competitions and trivia <laughs> nights? Are you one of those? Oh, God, okay. <laughs> All right, so how long does an edit, like um, let's talk about them as two separate things, but how long does a how long does an edit take? Like if it's a structural edit versus a copy edit, um, is it about the same length of time for each one? I think it is about the same length of time because you do, with a structural edit, although you're not looking line by line at it, you do have to read it closely to make sure you're not missing a crucial element that might confuse you and then, you know, it transfers into your report to the author and the author reads it and goes, but they didn't read it closely enough because it clearly says on this page that what they're questioning didn't happen. So they do take about the same amount of time and roughly 15 to 20 hours, depending on the word length, um, to read a book for the first time. Um, It's... A big job. <laughs> yeah, no, it is a big job. And so just given that, like what sort of costings, I know because this is a question that, you know, with self-publishing, everybody says, you know, you must get an editor. You have to get the book edited before you just fling it out there onto Amazon into the world. You know, if, if an author's looking at paying for for a process like this, what kind of budget do they need to have in their head? It's a pretty big amount of money. It's... Um more than a thousand dollars depending on uh, everything depends on the length of the book and also it can depend on the quality of the manuscript if it needs a huge structural overhaul and then a copy edit you're probably looking at two and a half to three thousand dollars if it's if it's structurally sound and it just needs a good copy edit you're probably looking at fifteen to two thousand fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars um it, it does vary between editors and it will vary depending on what an hourly rate what kind of hourly rate they charge yeah uh, and the experience they have um less experienced editors probably just as good as a more experienced ed- editor but might not charge as much but then you are risking if they don't have a lot of experience then you're risking maybe they'll miss some things that a more experienced editor wouldn't miss okay um, yeah. So what's the best way to find an editor? I mean, should I be looking at sort of asking around my networks? Like is word of mouth a good way or what's the how, – how do you suggest that, you know, if I need an editor, how do I find one? Sure. Word of mouth is really good. If you've got a, um, a, a writer's group that you go to and people have used editors before and trust them, that is an excellent way to find an editor um, because, it you know, how do you judge whether someone's a good editor just from a website or a CV? Um if you don't have a writer's group, then the next best way is to go to your to the Society of Editors in your state. And I think every state and territory except the Northern Territory has a Society of Editors. All right. Um, and you just have to Google Society of Editors and up they'll pop. Right. Um, and they all have uh, a directory of freelance editors and usually they'll also have a listing of their specialties. So if you've written a specific genre, um, you can find someone who has worked on that genre and approach them. So that's actually a really good question because one of the questions I would have to ask you is 
do you have to like a manuscript to <laughs> to sort of do a good structural edit or, or something on it? I mean, do you you obviously would have genres and, and styles of fiction that you prefer. Is that what you prefer to read or what you prefer to edit or how does that work? Uh, I don't think you have to like a manuscript to do a good job on it. But mm-hmm. having said that, I haven't met a manuscript yet that I couldn't find something to like about it. You know, there might be wonderful characters, there might be a wonderful story, the writer might have a fabulous turn of phrase. Even if the manuscript as a whole isn't to my taste, I can always say, you do this really well. Dialogue might be great, something like that. I kind of hesitate to edit stuff that I really love to read for myself because it can be hard to turn off the editing mind when you're reading for pleasure. Oh, of course, yeah. So, so I mean, I love um, I love historical fiction. I love literary fiction. I love um, romances and fantasies um, and crime. I, I pretty much, I'm pretty much. I was going to say you pretty much covered it all off there. <laughs> that's pretty much everything. So, having said, I don't like working on stuff I like to read. That's mm-hmm. untrue. Um, <laughs> we need to we need to edit that statement. I think just quietly. I think, I think you need to, yeah. <laughs> Um, um, no, so uh, yeah, I mean, working on any type of fiction, you're. Inc- I'm, I'm incredibly lucky as an editor to get to work on any type of fiction because it's hard to get established in the industry as an editor of fiction, um, and that people appreciate the work I do and keep giving me fiction to edit is amazing. Oh, fantastic! So uh, that's my next question. How do you get your projects? Do you, most of them come through publishers, or are they through Authors Direct, or what? You know, where does where does where do they come from? Do they fall out of the sky? <laughs> <laughs> they are pretty even split between publishers and private clients. Um, I, when I started as a freelancer, most of my work came through publishers because that's where my contacts were. People I'd worked with in house, or people who had asked for recommendations. And um, you know, I just now nowadays I just get emails saying, "Are you available for a copy edit on this book?" And if it fits in my schedule, I say, "Of course." Um, I also have a website and I get private clients contacting me through the website and... Oh, well, we'll put your um, website address <laughs> into the show notes, of course. Is it kyliemason.com? Well, it's kyliemmason.com um, because the other one was already gone. Oh, what? Uh, yeah, I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I get private clients and I, you know, email back and forth with them about what they're looking for, whether they want uh, a structural edit or report if they're planning on submitting to publishers or agents or if they want to copy edit because they want to self-publish and I give them quotes based on what they want and how long their manuscript is. Okay. And, um, yeah. So what does a typical day look like for you? Is it, you know, you sort of like sit down at 9 o'clock in the morning and start reading? Is that how it works? Because if that's the case, I want your job. <laughs> that's how it works on the perfect day. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get up and, you know, do the morning routine and then I sit down at 9 o'clock and I start working and I work through until lunch and have a little bit of a break and then I work through until however long it takes me to finish that day's deadline. I I set deadlines for myself every day because otherwise I fall behind and I don't want to let any of my clients down. You know, if they expect a book on Friday, then they're going to get the edit back on Friday. I don't want to mess anyone around like that. Uh, but a typical day is really boring because all it is is reading and yeah. I don't, there are no distractions, don't have any colleagues, you know, emailing me or stepping into my office or anything like that. Um, the only distractions I have are the ones I make for myself. Right. I was going to say, because one of the biggest difficulties with freelance anything is the distractions that you make for yourself. Um, so obviously, you know, you've been doing it for a while now. You've, you've got the sort of discipline aspect of it down pat. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Uh, number one is always get dressed. <laughs> Don't work in your pajamas. <laughs> I have to drop my kids at school, so I have to get dressed. It's probably a good thing that I had them because otherwise I would still be sitting here in my dressing gown. Yes. yes. And I know there are freelancers who like to work in their pajamas. I'm not criticizing them, but no. for me, I have to get dressed. Um, it just it just makes me feel that that it makes that difference from getting up and staying at home to read for fun and getting up, staying at home and working. And uh, yeah, so I get up, I get dressed, I start to read, and and then I'm not, if my mind starts to wander, I take a break because I know I'm not doing my best work. So taking a break means going on Twitter or checking my email or going on Tumblr. And just seeing what's happening in the world um, and, you know, maybe having a bit of a conversation and then coming back to the job so my mind is refreshed. Yeah, okay. Because, yeah, that would be the difficulty would be because you have to see every word and yeah. if you get to the point where your eyes are glazing over, that's not going to work for you, right? That, absolutely. And, and that's why you read things more than once because you, you never pick up anything on the first pass anyway. Right. And if you happen to have had one of those mind-wandering, eye-glazing moments at a really crucial spot, the second read through, you can see that you've missed. Maybe it says it rather than if. Or, you know, just little typos right. like that yeah. that your eye, that your eyes um, glance across. Okay. So, are you seeing similar problems over and over with manuscripts? Like when you're doing, you know, a structural edit um, or even a copy edit, are, are you seeing? Is there is are there a couple of things that just you you see all the time? There are one of my one of the things I see the most that I hate the most is point of view switches, like head hopping is what we call it. Yeah. Where um, it de- it depends on the kind of book you're writing and the point of view that you're writing in, but a lot of people go for third person narratives and don't stick with one point of view um, for a long enough time to to for readers to get used to it. Right. So um, and, and this happens quite a lot in romances where we're getting both the hero and the heroine's point of view and you're switching between them and it can be quite disorientating and quite confusing and I really like sticking with one character and seeing them through and to, to a conclusion of, of that part of the, the novel for them. Right. So um, not within the, the middle of a scene. You need a good break. Yeah, between, exactly. Yeah. Don't okay. don't um don't switch heads in the middle of a scene or in the middle of a paragraph. It just it's really discombobulating. Um, so that's one thing that I see a lot, and I I understand that there are people who can write who do that and they can do it really well, but it's tough to do without being confusing. So that's something I try to address when I copy edit books and when I structurally edit as well, and kind of bring it to the writer's attention and see if they can fix it without losing, you know, what the they momentum. want to say. Yeah. The momentum, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, the other thing I see is overwriting, that, re- that writers don't trust readers to see where they're going and what they're saying. Right. Um, lots and lots of adjectives and strings of um, descriptive prose and it's kind of kind of slows down the narrative and it, doesn't give readers a chance to build up the image in their heads, I think. And, you know, it, it, I find myself so distracted by things that are overwritten that I am taken out of the story, and that's the one thing you want to avoid. Okay, so people need to leave space for the yeah. reader to do some work. Absolutely. Okay, all right. All right, so then um, last question, what are your sort of top tips for authors to, to get the most out of working with an editor? Because I know a lot of... 
a lot of people think, oh, editors, you know, <laughs> they're just going to make a mess of it and they make the changes and they don't like this. And But, you, like, for me, I actually, I love, I love working with an editor. I think editors are great because they bring to a manuscript a point of view that you, you get too close to stuff and you can't see you can't see it yourself. And so you need that second pair of eyes to go, you know what, that totally would not happen. That character would not do that. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's a really positive thing, but I know a lot of people are, you know, find it a bit scary. So what are your tips for authors to get the most out of working with an editor? I'm so glad to hear you say that you like working with an editor. It's really rare to hear authors oh. say that they like editors. But we are scary. We're strangers who are reading something close to their to a writer's heart and we are critical and, and that's our job we judge people for a living basically um and how does and that make do. you feel <laughs> <laughs> it makes me feel really powerful um <laughs> but we also because we know we're judging people for a living we try to do it sensitively and with a, an eye on people's feelings because Again, it's not my book. I, I'm an editor. I didn't write it. I didn't put my blood, sweat and tears into this book. So I think what authors need to keep in mind is, is maybe bring an open mind to an edit and trust that the editor's on their side. You know, we don't want to take over your work. We don't, it's not our name that's going to be on the cover of your book. We just want you to shine and we want your book to be the best it can be. So I think, yeah, don't be scared of editors and don't assume that they're going to rip your book apart because we won't. We we might have questions about some of the choices you've made and we might have suggestions about how to address those choices, but we're always going to take time to understand what you're trying to do with the story and we'll use that understanding to help you improve the book. Fantastic. So we should just go into it with a positive mindset and it's going to be wonderful. And any minute now I'm going to get that, Alison, this is so perfect, we need to do nothing. Review. Absolutely. Yeah, it'll be the very next manuscript you send out, I'm sure. <laughs> All right, Kylie, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for calling me, Alison. That was great. Kylie's great. I've worked with Kylie before. She's um she's an awesome editor. Oh, is she? What what hmm. did she work with? What did you work with her on? She's done a few little jobs with us at the Australian Writers Centre on our style guide and um, on things like that. So it you know I guess it's an illustration that editors don't just edit books. Um, you can also call on their services and their expertise when it comes to you know being an arbiter of whether something should be expressed this way or this way, and not necessarily in a fictional book. It could be in a court document or it could be in um, you know a, a whole variety of things even you can even use editors in your blog posts I know that quite a number of our um, graduates use um, a, a fellow graduate and editor called Bill Harper in Queensland to help them with some of their material all right what do you use editors for do you use editors apart from your fictional work um, well, obviously, I've worked with editors on both of my non-fiction projects as well, which was quite a different experience to working with an editor on a fiction project. Mm. I think I think mostly because, I guess, you know, I've worked with editors in magazines for a long time, and I was an editor. Like, I was a features editor, and I was a sub-editor, and I was a copy editor, and all those sorts of things. So, I do have a lot of background in editing myself, so I, I guess I approach the editing process slightly differently to someone who's never done that, because... You get very, I think when you work in magazines and you, you freelance, you get very used to being edited. Mm. And I think that that is possibly one of the most valuable experiences of my entire life 
is being used to being edited because yeah. I, I understand that most editors, I, I've had a few experience over the years, mostly in with feature stories that I've done where something's been changed or, um, you know, the they took all the jokes out. I mean, really? <laughs> Who does that? Or something like that where I've been really unhappy with how a story's turned out because of the editing. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you have to kind of let that go and walk away and think, well, that was one story and there's, you know, I've written a million and most of them have been great, you know. So, um, so when it came to the fiction process, I think what really surprised me about it was that um, they kind of picked up stuff I was really hoping they wouldn't notice, you know, <laughs> like you kind of, you write this stuff and you somewhere in the back of your mind, you know that there's maybe a little bit of a question about something and they come back to you and they go, yeah, no. Nah. <laughs> it's not there, gonna work. there is a question. <laughs> you need to rethink that bit, and you go, "Oh God, I was really hoping to get away with that." But yeah, no, like, I, I find editors great. It's like having someone on your team. As Absolutely, far as- I think that um, being edited is actually such a blessing. And I know that there are a lot of new writers that take, you know, per, you know are really affronted by some of the changes and think that, that it's an attack on their skill. But really. I reckon 99.9% of my experience with editors um, is is something that has improved my writing out of sight. I'm I'm so grateful for the ruthless, hard-assed editors out there who have really gone through my work with a red pen. And I've then gone through it and tried to figure out, you know, why they've done what they've done. And I've learned so much in the process. So if you can actually get exposed to a a, a really hardline editor, your writing will absolutely be better for it. So Absolutely. You mm. want someone who's a hard ass. You Definitely. don't want someone who's just going to go, oh, this is lovely. No matter how much I might have said in the interview that I'm desperately waiting for someone just to send it back saying, this is perfect. <laughs> It ain't going to happen, and I know that. And, and I, so for that reason, I want someone who's going to help me make it better. Yep. So editors, red pens, embrace it. So something that can help you write, um, it's a web pick, couple of web picks that I've had a look at this week, and they're, I think they're a little bit hilarious. One is Portents Content Idea Generator, and what you do is you whack in your subject into um, the little box, so I'm going to type in the word writing, and then you um, click, and it comes up with a whole heap of different, uh, you know, potential blog post ideas, really. So the oddest place you will find writing, some of them don't really make sense. 18 ways writing could leave you needing a lawyer. (laughs) Why writing will make you question everything. And 10 myths uncovered about writing. So that's one particular content ID generator if you're stuck. But HubSpot also has a blog topic generator. And this one isn't quite uh, as robust, I don't think. But you type in three nouns. So I'm going to type in writer book and give me another now now um dragons okay <laughs> and dragons let's see give me blog topics a week of blog topics just for you it says 10 quick tips about books miley cyrus and dragons 10 surprising <laughs> things they have in common <laughs> now that would be a blog post worth reading <laughs> let's definitely write that one <laughs> 10 things your competitors can teach you about writing. Okay, so, you know, then you can you can click to try again and, and put in some different ones. I do like the portent content generator, content ID generator a little bit better, but it's just a bit of fun and you never know, even though you might click retry, 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 um, it might actually come up with uh, 
with an idea that you can go with. So it's just, you know, a bit of fun, really. Well, I've just put writing into the content idea generator and got the Hunger Games Guide to Writing. So that could be, you know, interesting. That could work, yes. There can be tributes. There can be battles. There could. There could be death. (laughs) Yes, exactly. There could be the lovely Liam Hensworth. Um, Now that could be worth it. Now, what's our working writer's tip this week? Um, well, it's a question that comes up a lot and it's, a, it's one that, um, that I get emailed about regularly. It's, a, it's all about case studies. Now, case studies are an important part of feature writing. Most stories that you write are going to require, well, not most, probably half. Like Some of them will be expert only and you're looking for you know, associations and psychologists and all sorts of things. But the other... Um, other ones will always require real person stories. I love that term, don't you? Real persons <laughs> as opposed to experts or celebrities. And so they will require case studies in some way, shape or form. Now, one of the questions I get asked a lot is, do you pitch an idea without all your case studies lined up? What happens if you can't deliver? Mm. Now, it's a regular question and it it regularly surprises me, to be perfectly honest with you, because I think that if you pitch a story requiring case studies and you don't know that you can find those case studies, then you're sort of on the back foot right from the start, particularly if the editor comes back to you and says, yes, I love it, I want it next week. Yeah. And suddenly you're out there looking for your three, you know, people who got divorced and still like each other enough to live in the same house stories and those three stories not only have to be on topic but they all have to be different variations on that subject so no I would not pitch an idea like that without having at least my main case study lined up yeah someone who said yes I'll do that I will speak to you on that subject potentially be photographed and be you know potentially in a newspaper with a million readers and unless you've got that particularly one, at least one, don't pitch the story, not until you've found one. Absolutely. I agree. In fact, I'm so paranoid, I find all of them. Yes. And I outline the case studies to the editor as well. Yes. I, I may not find, if I need to find an expert, I may not necessarily line up the expert, especially if that kind of expert is very common, like a business coach. But yes. if, it, if it was an expert in something like, you know, um, solar panels and nuclear fission and how they work together, I would definitely need to line that up. I would, you know, for my own peace of mind. But the same goes for case studies. Typically, you need not only only really good strong case studies because you're going to be judged by the the case studies that you find and the case studies you d- decide to feature and if they're weak an editor is less likely to come back to you in the future yeah. so yeah and as you say not only that do they need to be strong they can't all be the same as each other and the harder they are to find i think it's crazy when people pitch stories and say they're going to find case studies that are pretty difficult, like, you know, a unicycle riding um, divorced person who also is on a paleo diet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very we hard. Love those. Yes. And they're not that easy to find. So you better damn well find it before you um, pitch the story, or you'll end up either A, with egg on your face and having to apologize to the editor, or B, yeah. just stressing yourself out way too much and annoying all your friends trying to find this unicycle riding um, <laughs> divorced person who has. Is on a paleo diet. 
And I think the other thing to bear in mind too, and I think this is something that people may be unaware of, is that you can't rely on the fact that those people will be anonymous. Exactly. Um, you can't sell. It's very, very difficult to sell a story with three anonymous case studies in it. Mm. You may get away with one if, yep. if the person really, if it's a particularly sensitive subject and they really require anonymity, mm. um, you may be able to get away with that in the sense of running it, you know, getting it past the editor that way. Um, but do not do not go to an editor with three case studies who want to be anonymous because it's just not going to work. They need photographs. At the end of the day, most of the time, they will want to photograph at least one of those case yeah. studies. And so you need to have you need to have that in mind. I mean, there may be that you will get a pass on some, in some occasions. You will get one through with a name change mm. um, to hide the details, etc. But you will not get through with three. Yep, very good. I think it's really worth bearing that in mind when and when you're coming up with your amazing stories sometimes there's a reason those stories haven't been done exactly <laughs> because there are no unicycle riding divorce people who oh, are I on bet there are. I challenge you to find one Valerie get out there and find me one now <laughs> alright that brings us to the end of our podcast for this week what are you up to until we next talk um, I, well, you know, boringly enough, I'm writing because that's what I do. I am. I'm, I'm probably still going to be internally happy dancing regarding my series with Ashette, but for the time being, I will just be quietly doing that on the inside until I get my draft finished. Wonderful. Well, I'm heading to Melbourne to our uh, office in Melbourne at the Australian Writers' Centre to do some work and some planning and meet some students there as well. I will also be continuing to do a happy dance because um, uh, I'm still just chuffed that we are the number one writing and literature podcast in Australia and we're already in the top 100 of all podcasts in Australia so I'm hoping we climb that little ladder. World Um, domination is moments away Val. Of course moments (laughs) (laughs) and um, we would love your review on iTunes if you have a spare moment if you've got 30 seconds in your day to leave us a review on iTunes we'd greatly appreciate it. Feel free to also leave us some comments in the show notes which you can find at writers centre.com.au slash podcast and you can email us at podcast at writercentre.com.au in the meantime where can we find you Alison Tate you can find me at alisontate.com and you can find me at valeriecoo.com thank you for listening and until next time goodbye bye bye